a backyard barbecue. The backyard has been decorated in a Polynesian theme by the wife. The guests, all CEOs or CEOs children or CEOs wives, mingle among tiki torches, beach umbrellas, ethnic statues. Tribal music plays from hidden speakers via the same satellite feed used by a luau hut at the local mall. The ex-president is responsible for cooking 20 pounds of USDA choice beef for the CEOs and their spouses and children. Appetizers, drinks, and finger foods have already been taken care of by professional caterers who were strip-searched, interrogated, fingerprinted, and ultimately okayed by Secret Service agents earlier in the morning. The ex-president's grill is a Don Johnson Legacy 500 and will not start no matter how many times the ex-president presses the push-button ignition, resulting in a tragicomic scene of ex-presidential cursing and flailing and spitting and grill kicking, which is duly noted by the Secret Service agents monitoring the ex-president's every move, both in the backyard and on closed-circuit TV in the ex-president's home's state-of-the-art security center. One of the Secret Service agents approaches the ex-president and suggests he start the Don Johnson Legacy 500 with a match or a lighter, but the ex-president shrugs him off, continues to throttle the push button, and curse, and flail, and spit. The Secret Service agents wear sunglasses, and lays, and wireless earsets, and bulletproof Hawaiian shirts. The male caterers are bare-chested and body-oiled, and the females wear shell bras, poinsettia hair wreaths, and grass skirts. The ex-president visits the future site of his presidential library. Currently, it is an abandoned strip mall, where squatters have taken over the Old Navy, and unwanted pets have taken over the Bed Bath & Beyond. Ms. Sharpley, the library's director of design and construction, shows the ex-president a roll of blueprints and points out the proposed locations for the library's various annexes and wings. She indicates that the ex-president's papers will be stored in what is now Radio Shack, and an exhibit on his administration's major domestic policy accomplishments will be housed in what is now Popeye's famous fried chicken. Now, as you know, Mr. President, presidential libraries don't just build themselves, says Ms. Sharpley, strolling the strip mall perimeter at a safe distance from the stray pets and grizzled, leisure-wear hoarding squatters. Conservative estimates put the price tag at approximately $300 million, and given the state of the economy, that $300 million isn't going to come easy. Conventional fundraising techniques just aren't going to cut it anymore. Meet and greets, gala dinners, celebrity-infested soirees, all artifacts from an age now sadly obsolete. We're going to have to try a fresh approach. We're going to have to shake things up, stir up the pot, think outside the box. We're thinking you and the former vice president precariously perched above separate dunk tanks, charging the general public $100 a throw. We're thinking the water is 40 to 50 degrees in temperature, and three submersions in a row yield the thrower a plastic trinket or a large but cheaply manufactured stepped toy. We're thinking telethons, pledge drives, you persistently wheedling for donations and telling family-friendly jokes and performing selections from Les Miserables, accompanied by the occasional tap dancing routine or soft shoe. We're thinking bikini car washes nationwide, featuring attractive teenage girls whose names will engrave into floor tiles commemorating the library's silver circle of friends. 
The ex-president nods his head, absently, and watches the unwanted pets scurrying in and out of the abandoned bed bath and beyond. There are dogs, cats, ferrets, llamas. There are hamsters, chinchillas, a baby elephant, pot-bellied pigs. Nearby, outside the shutter display windows of Old Navy, the squatters roast raw meat on sticks over a raging barrel fire and sing Depression-era folk songs accompanied by harmonica, jaw harp, and acoustic guitar. In the burned-out husk of a Mattresses Unlimited, an emaciated mare gives birth to a stillborn colt, and a brood of baby quail chicks cry out for their absent, defeathered, spit-roasted mother. In Walton books, a pack of squatters rummage through the classic section and stockpile stripped copies of War and Peace, Remembrance of Things Past, Crime and Punishment, and Moby Dick to use as dietary roughage and toilet paper. And in the parking lot, a mangy cocker spaniel bounds toward the ex-president, tail wagging, ears flopping, eyes hungry for attention, affection, love, until secret service agents stop the unwanted dog dead in his tracks with a fusillade of tranquilizer darts as Ms. Sharpley keeps strolling, expatiating, oblivious, tapping the ex-president on the shoulder and pointing to the cockroach-infested TGI Fridays where a library exhibit will commemorate the American military's heroic wounded and dead. The ex-president unpacks. He slices open cardboard boxes with an exacto knife and roots through styrofoam packing peanuts. He asks the wife where the official White House stationery goes and searches in vain for the NBA regulation-sized basketball signed by legendary center Wilt Chamberlain and all 15 members of the ex-president's cabinet. As the ex-president sorts through the boxed, bubble-wrapped, often inaccurately labeled mementos of his childhood, his college years, his lost decade, his spiritual and political awakening, his marriage, his governorship, his exclusive eight-year residency at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, his $2.1 million suburban compound, is eerily quiet. No staffers offering him itineraries, reports, New York Times crossword puzzle solutions. No advisors briefing him on the financial crisis, the Middle East, the White House chef's soup of the day. Instead, there are only the ex-president, the wife, and secret service agents, who, in addition to monitoring the hundreds of high-definition camera feeds in the compound's state-of-the-art security center and ensuring the ex-president's round-the-clock privacy, safety, and protection, perform various household tasks such as dusting the baseboards and unclogging problem drains and recycling the cans of Diet Pepsi the ex-president leaves on the kitchen counter until such time that the Secret Service have satisfactorily screened out any potential assassins among the myriad job applicants for full-time ex-presidential maid. The ex-president's new suburban neighborhood is called Rustic Meadows, Rustic Meadows is exclusively inhabited by the ex-president, multi-millionaire CEOs, and beautiful, cosmetically enhanced women who are either the CEO's wives or their daughters. The ex-president can never really tell. 
Rustic Meadows has recently been encircled with a high-voltage security gate and is patrolled by Secret Service agents who interrogate and strip-search the various plumbers, electricians, UPS delivery men, power and light employees, singing telegram balladeers, etc., who seek entry in order to provide the ex-president and his multimillionaire neighbors with basic goods and services. After the interrogations are completed, the Secret Service apologize for the inconvenience and offer the delivery men and maintenance workers limited edition 11x17 glossies of the ex-president practicing his golf putt on the carpet of the Oval Office. On the rare occasions that the ex-president encounters his CEO neighbors while entering or exiting Rustic Meadows and its electrically protected privacy and exclusivity, the neighbors wave and say hello and call him Mr. President as if he, and not that upstart new guy, were still the leader of the free world, their commander-in-chief, the alpha and the omega of the executive branch. The ex-president, meanwhile, calls his neighbors Buddy, or Skipper, or Tex, or Pal, not because he wants to cultivate a sense of camaraderie or jocular intimacy, but because the ex-president can never, for the life of him, remember their names. says a recent USA Today Gallup poll indicates that 68% of Americans believe the ex-president is the worst president of all time. On the front page is also an eye-catching full-color picture of the new guy waving to European dignitaries, celebrities, and well-wishers from the stairs of Air Force One, the caption describing the assembled crowd's enthusiasm and pep as being uncontainable, and the ex-president angrily crumples up the newspaper and tosses it onto the floor, where it is briskly retrieved by a secret service agent and whisked away to the recycling bin. The ex-president sees the new guy everywhere, on television, on the covers of magazines, on candy bars, fruit snacks, cereal boxes, certain brands of petroleum jelly. The ex-president sees the new guy in vivid, disturbing, surrealistic dreams, spinning around in the ex-president's Oval Office chair, playing air guitar to Boston's More Than a Feeling with the ex-president's teenage daughter, making love to the ex-president's wife in the White House press briefing room, the new guy taking questions from journalists on his endurance, favorite positions, and technique as he brings the ex-president's wife to screaming, podium-shaking climax. Often, the ex-president wakes up in a cold sweat, his body shaking, his hand instinctively reaching for the bedside panic button that will bring armed secret service agents into his bedroom within seconds. But he never presses the button. Instead, he 
he lies there, sweat-drenched, trembling, staring fearfully at the ceiling beside his peaceful, sleeping wife, until sleep again overtakes him, and the Secret Service agents in the security center are treated to a live audio feed of his ungodly, subwoofer-shaking snores. backyard barbecue, the ex-president continues his argument with the Don Johnson Legacy 500 grill, and a CEO approaches with a beautiful woman on his arm. The CEO introduces himself with his first name, and then the name of his company, as if christened by his profession in the same way that a tradesman would have been in days of old. Baker, Brewer, Carpenter, Smith, now Pfizer, Conoco, AT&T, Exxon Mobil. The CEO shakes the ex-president's hand and identifies the beautiful woman on his arm as being his wife, her name either Linda or Lucinda or Glinda. The ex-president has not been listening very closely. Linda or Lucinda or Glinda is the only person at the ex-president's Polynesian-themed barbecue who could conceivably be actually Polynesian. The ex-president's own wife entertained the CEOs and their children and spouses near the Polynesian statuary, where the bare-chested and shell-breasted caterers hover with silver plates of deviled eggs, crab canapes, mini quiche. Occasionally, the male caterers take a short break from catering so they can juggle various objects that they have set on fire. The CEO introducing himself and his vaguely Asian-looking wife to the ex-president tells the former leader of the free world that no matter what the polls say, the ex-president will always be right up there with Lincoln and Jefferson and Washington and Reagan in his book. The polls that the CEO refers to, more likely than not, are the ones recently conducted by the Washington Post that indicate, among other things, that 64% of Americans wouldn't hire the ex-president as a part-time receptionist or entry-level data clerk, 74% of Americans wouldn't be surprised if the ex-president lost to a chimpanzee or an extremely intelligent dog at tic-tac-toe, and 81% of Americans wouldn't trust the ex-president to watch their house, collect their mail, and feed their cats twice a day if they, the Americans being polled, were out of the country on an extended vacation. The ex-president presses the Don Johnson Legacy 500's push-button ignition several more times, but nothing happens, just the same useless click, the same old song and dance. The CEO and his wife politely excuse themselves, head toward the tiki torches, tribal music, mixed drinks, and meanwhile, near the Polynesian statuary, the female caterers offer the ex-president's guests spinach and cheese empanadas and wild mushroom wontons, and the shirtless males juggle polo mallets, golf drivers, and tennis rackets, consumed in flames. The ex-president receives a call from the former Secretary of the Interior. 
the ex-president knows the call is from the former Secretary of the Interior without even checking his phone because the ex-president recently assigned a different ringtone to each member of his now-defunct cabinet on a rainy Sunday when he had nothing else to do and the satellite television had not yet been installed as the Secret Service were still conducting their lengthy strip search and interrogation with the DirecTV dish installer in an undisclosed location before he could be permitted to enter past Rustic Meadows' recently erected high-voltage security gate. The ex-president answers his phone, exchanges formulaic pleasantries, asks the former Secretary of the Interior how the rest of the old cabinet is doing, and she says, peachy, dandy, super, keen. In fact, she says, she was just playing the former Secretary of Education in racquetball, absolutely thumping her, she adds, straight sets, and afterward, half-naked in the locker room, she was invited to join her vanquished opponent and the rest of the cabinet to see the former press secretary's new one-woman off-Broadway play in New York. The ex-president is incredulous. He says he thought the former press secretary had taken up deep-sea fishing. The former secretary of the interior responds, yes, she has. Her play is about deep-sea fishing. It's called Mahi Mahi, I Have Known. Back during his presidency, the ex-president hadn't thought much of the former Secretary of the Interior. He had considered her a lightweight, and also a bit of a lush. But now, she is pretty much his only friend. The rest of his cabinet no longer speaks to him. His wealthy donor pals have abandoned him. Even his old frat brothers have distanced themselves from him, no longer sending him Christmas cards, birthday wishes, copies of the Delta Kappa Epsilon alumni newsletter. Now, the only personalized ringtone to emanate from the ex-president's phone is the former Secretary of the Interior indicating March of the Flowers from Tchaikovsky's Nutcracker Suite, never love theme from Flashdance, never the Hallelujah Chorus from Handel's Messiah, never Bon Jovi's Livin' on a Prayer. Thank God for the satellite TV. After the Secret Service had finished interrogating the dish installer, the direct TV man had hooked everything up, nice and neat, and now over 200 channels beamed into the ex-president's 42-inch wall-mounted plasma flat screen, as clear as a dream. So, the ex-president holds his long-dormant cell phone to his ear, and the former Secretary of the Interior tells him how she spoke with the former press secretary backstage after a Saturday evening performance of Mahi Mahi I Have Known. How the former press secretary said that ever since the play opened, to absolutely rave reviews, the former secretary of the interior adds, the village voice reviewer, in her effusion of praise, reaches the typographical equivalent of an orgasm by her final paragraph. The former press secretary has felt like a completely new woman. Her skin, smoother. Her energy level, increased. Her sex drive, off the charts. She's jogging four days a week and eating a diet rich in leafy vegetables. She's knitting an afghan for her infant nephew and taking an online course in conversational Chinese. She said that when she thinks back to the last four years, behind her podium, between flags, dodging questions, denying allegations, blinking at flashbulbs, refuting facts, struggling to maintain her composure and slow her heart rate and control her breathing and resist the urge to curl up fetally on the floor behind the podium's protective wood paneling as the press corps assails from all sides, slinging statistics, quotations, 
poll findings, innuendos, names of foreign dignitaries and terror suspects, and seemingly fictional cities whose correct pronunciations involve throat clearing and tongue rolling and other linguistic gymnastics the press secretary has grown to despise and resent and fear as they always accompany some scathing question about why were we lied to and when do our children come home and why are so many of them dead. When she thinks of these things, she cannot conceive of them actually happening to her. She who is now so content, so centered, so tranquil. She who now cancels meetings to take two-hour bubble baths and puts calls on hold to inhale the fragrance of urban daffodils. She cannot believe she was ever that anxiety-ridden, that distressed, that close to concluding her daily press briefings by leaning into the podium's microphone, taking a deep breath, and then shrieking at the White House press corps to, for the love of God, just leave her alone as feedback squeals and the flashbulbs explode and the deputy press secretary rushes in to pry her superior's vice grip fingers off the podium so the deputy can properly conclude the press briefing by thanking everyone politely for their time. The press secretary who now flies kites on the roof of her apartment building, who now sings show tunes to hospitalized children and the elderly, who now wakes up every morning next to a husband she remembers she loves, in an apartment she remembers she's lucky to afford, in a city she remembers is limitless in its possibilities for a woman like her, untethered by timidity, or self-doubt, or fear. She said she used to forget these things the last four years. She does not forget them anymore. The ex-president, listening to the former Secretary of the Interior on his phone, eases into a patio chair and feels his aching joints radiate their gratitude. The former Secretary of the Interior says she's getting a call from the former Secretary of Transportation, no doubt about this evening's Ingmar Bergman movie night with the former Secretaries of Defense, Commerce, Agriculture, and Labor, and politely signs off, assuring the ex-president she'll speak with him soon. The ex-president thinks about the former press secretary and her new life, writing plays and flying kites and fishing for mahi-mahi and marlin in the Gulf of Mexico and the Florida Keys. And meanwhile, the Secret Service agents pull out weeds, water the azaleas, resod problem sections of the back lawn. The wife sits inside, writing a grocery list on official White House stationery. A multi-millionaire neighbor passes overhead in an auto-gyro, purchased at auction for a cool 750 G's from the estate of Charlton Heston. The ex-president, determined to make every post-presidential day count to not spend his retirement in idleness, immobility, and torpor, resolves to finish the New York Times crossword puzzle just as soon as he catches a few Z's in the patio chair. But when he finally awakes, night has long since fallen, the New York Times has long since been recycled, his hopes for accomplishment have long since expired, and so instead, the ex-president remains in his chair, gazing at the flickering light of his backyard's tiki torches, feeling the cool breeze on his bare arms, his face, listening, teary-eyed, to a circle of Secret Service agents playing loud percussion and strumming Spanish guitars as a prospective full-time ex-presidential maid sings mournful Cuban boleros in the dark.
Facebook's president attends a black tie gala event celebrating the launch of the website for his presidential library. The presidential library itself has not started construction. It's still, by conservative estimates, $300 million shy of the necessary funds. But the website is fully operational, paid for by banner ads for online degrees, affordable auto insurance, low-carb dietary regimens, arrangemyindianmarriage.com. At the gala event, there are mimes and contortionists and motionless silver-body-painted liberal arts graduates pretending to be statues, as well as a barbershop quartet called For the Land of the Free, who perform a cappella renditions of patriotic American songs while dressed as the four presidents memorialized on Mount Rushmore. George Washington sings lead, Thomas Jefferson, tenor, Teddy Roosevelt, baritone, and Abraham Lincoln, a rich, velvety bass. As the evening progresses, the mimes reenacting decisive American military victories, the contortionists forming all 50 states with their bodies, the human statues briefly coming to life to shoot up heroin in an out-of-service freight elevator, as for the land of the free perform a rousing, jazzy, my country tis of thee. The ex-president picks unenthusiastically at his oysters Rockefeller, his potatoes au gratin, his salade niçoise. Seated at the ex-president's table are the wife and various multimillionaires who get into a heated argument during My Country Tis of Thee's third verse over the most dignified way to hold a fork. Meanwhile, outside, a large crowd of protesters assembles, calling the ex-president a liar, a thief, a criminal, a killer, waving signs, chanting slogans, burning effigies, American flags, valet parking podiums. Recent surveys suggest that 23% of Americans wish the ex-president would enter an irreversible coma, and 36% wish him bodily harm involving a wheat thresher, and 47% wish him a lifelong lower bowel discomfort, and 56% wish he had never been born. The police arrive, tempers flare, and soon the parking lot becomes an impromptu battlefield. Tear gas, Molotov cocktails, rubber bullets, batons, police officers hit by traffic cones and organic vegetables and rocks, and eventually, albeit mistakenly, beating a caught-in-the-crossfire parking valet to a bloody, unrecognizable pulp. Inside, the gala participants bid on White House memorabilia and ephemera in a silent auction. The ex-president's soiled linens, the ex-president's half-completed jigsaw puzzles, the ex-president's unwashed tube socks, the ex-president's overnight orthodontic retainer, the human statues, strung out, silver-flaked, emerging woozily from the freight elevator, stagger back into the main hall and abruptly pass out on the floor, one by one, as the barbershop quartet sings Yankee Doodle Dandy. The multimillionaires observe the unconscious silver-painted performers lying beside and, in one case, beneath their table, and marvel at the heroin-addicted human statue's ability to remain absolutely motionless. Later, the mimes will attempt to revive the statues with imaginary CPR, but it will be too late. Over one million dollars is raised. The ex-president unpacks in a large cardboard box mislabeled as complimentary White House shampoos and conditioners, he finds over 40 different board games. 
Candyland, Life, Trivial Pursuit, Parcheesi, Shoots and Ladders, Monopoly, Hungry Hungry Hippos, Sorry, The Ex-President Takes Out Monopoly, Lifts Off the Box Cover, Removes the Board, Sees the Title Deeds, The Six-Sided Dice, The Money, The Houses, The Hotels, The Community Chest Cards, The Chance Card, The Plane Pieces, The Thimble, The Iron, The Scotty Dog, The Top Hat, and even though he hasn't played Monopoly in over 40 years, it all comes flooding back to him. Age 9, wiping out his brother with a hotel on Park Place. Age 10, getting into a fist fight with his best friend over the unclear rules concerning free parking. Age 13, telling his 7-year-old sister she couldn't get out of jail until she proved to the parole board that she could return to the community as a law-abiding member of society, causing her to hurl the game board into the fireplace and break down to tears. The ex-president unfolds the game board. He organizes the cards, the pewter pieces, the houses and hotels, the money. He refreshes himself on the rules of play. He looks around his vast, bare-walled, nearly empty $2.1 million suburban home, searching for opponents, but gone are his brother, his sister, his parents, his grade school classmates, his childhood best friend. His parents are dead. His brother and sister live over a thousand miles away. His childhood best friend recently wrote a New York Times best-selling tell-all book that included full-page photographs of the young ex-president mooning the participants of a quilting bee and throwing up all over an inflatable bounce house after getting drunk on his parents' Jamaican rum. His grade school classmates have either become doctors, lawyers, pedophiles, or priests. Instead, as the ex-president scans his suburban compound for potential Monopoly adversaries, he sees Secret Service agents in their dark sunglasses, their dark suits, replenishing the hand soap, caulking wall joints, recycling the ex-president's newspapers, soda cans, junk mail. The ex-president requests that the Secret Service join him in the living room, and they immediately comply, some of them wearing rubber gloves wearing hairnets, wearing kitchen aprons, paint-splattered canvas smocks. The Secret Service agents stand at attention, say, Yes, sir, Mr. President, sir, and the ex-president asks if they know how to play Monopoly. Yes, sir, Mr. President, sir, say the Secret Service agents. One Secret Service agent holds a bottle of Windex, another holds a set of salad tongs, another holds an adjustable handheld multiple-bit electric drill. The ex-president asks the Secret Service if they would like to play Monopoly with him, and the Secret Service agents say, Yes, sir, Mr. President, sir, of course we will play Monopoly with you. According to recent polls, 57% of Americans would pretend not to recognize the ex-president if he waved to them or made eye contact at a party. 24% support enclosing the ex-president in a Kodiak bear in the same steel cage. 7% would actually spit upon the ex-president's supine body if they, the Americans being polled, found the ex-president lying unconscious on the ground. A Secret Service agent hands the ex-president his plane piece, his money, his two six-sided dice, and the ex-president shakes the dice in his hand, closes his eyes, murmurs a silent prayer for doubles, and lets the dice go. The dice scatter across the board cover, tumble and roll, 
finally reveal themselves, the game begins. The ex-president revisits the abandoned strip mall, where construction of his presidential library is being held up by lack of available funding. This despite the ex-president's grueling schedule of gala events and fundraisers, many of which require the ex-president to endure innumerable crowd-pleasing indignities, such as wearing a bright red clown nose, or playing chopsticks on a baby grand with his toes, or performing unconvincing impersonations of beloved Hollywood actor Jimmy Stewart, while simultaneously dancing the famous ballet coda of Swan Lake. Ms. Sharpley apprises the ex-president of the cost-saving adjustments to the architect's original vision. For instance, the indoor tropical botanical garden will now be a half-dozen potted plants, and the 20-by-30-foot mural depicting the ex-president's most awe-inspiring foreign policy successes will now be a smattering of unframed thrift store paintings depicting androgynous anime-style waifs, rustic barnyard settings, and dogs playing poker. And meanwhile, the unwanted pets, dramatically thinned in numbers, bark and hiss and screech and growl at the indigent squatters, who, in addition to Old Navy, now also occupy a gutted Starbucks and a failed branch of Washington Mutual Bank. So take the FedEx Kinko's office and print center, says Ms. Sharpley to the ex-president. Originally, we had wanted to turn it into an IMAX-style theater, showing looped footage of your most eloquent and influential public speeches, but now we're thinking of showing set speeches on a 1968 12-inch Sony Trinitron I just inherited from my recently deceased grandmother. Take the Chuck E. Cheese's. Originally, we had wanted to convert it into a glass-walled atrium, containing historic mementos from your diplomatic visits to the far and Middle East, but now we're thinking of maintaining the current architectural structure and housing set historic mementos amidst the skee-ball and arcade games, and in the ball pit. One of the unwanted pets, a three-legged miniature schnauzer, hobbles across the parking lot toward the ex-president, the schnauzer panting, protruding its tongue, struggling mightily, the Secret Service agents raise their tranquilizer guns, prepare to shoot, but the ex-president waves them off, orders them to hold their fire, and the schnauzer finally reaches the ex-president and sniffs and licks his patent leather Oxford shoes. No longer will the Red Lobster contain an Olympic-sized swimming pool in which synchronized swimmers reenact important moments during your presidency every hour on the hour, says Ms. Sharpley, consulting her updated blueprints. No longer will the Ace Hardware contain a chronological exhibit detailing your rise from unknown, allegedly paint-fume-huffing political greenhorn to leader of the free and democratic world. We're looking into low-cost building materials, such as discarded car tires and corrugated cardboard refrigerator boxes. We're looking into cutting labor costs by hiring undocumented workers who will work for wholesale peanuts or 55-gallon drums of liquid, spreadable cheese. Our old motto was, spare no expense. Our new motto is, legacy on a budget. We're exploring the possibility of tax havens in Granada and the Cayman Islands. We're considering keeping the Chipotle Mexican Grill as is, minus of course the mounds of bat guano that have mysteriously accumulated in the kitchen and near the beverage dispensers and in the dining area. The ex-president isn't listening. Instead, he plays with a miniature schnauzer pats its head, rubs its belly, tosses a roll of his library's blueprints, and tells the dog to go fetch. 
the schnauzer brings back the sun-bleached femur bone of a deceased baby elephant, and the ex-president feeds the schnauzer some funyuns, pats its head, says, good dog. Over by the Bed Bath & Beyond, a hunting expedition of indigent squatters captures a golden retriever, and the terrified animal barks and yelps and whimpers as it's dragged back toward Old Navy, where the squatter's compatriots await with a roaring barrel fire and sharp commemorative knives looted from an abandoned Army-Navy surplus store. Ms. Sharpley explains the unviability of the Hail to the Chief laser light show in what is now Panda Express. A chorus of unwanted dogs cry and howl in the cutlery section of Bed Bath & Beyond. The miniature schnauzer responds to the ex-president's repeated commands, sit, stand, play dead, roll over, and the ex-president says, you're a good dog, aren't you? Yes you are. Yes you are. Yes you are. The ex-president returns from a late-night walk with a miniature schnauzer, who he has formally adopted and named, after a day's deliberation, Mr. Pup, and discovers, much to his surprise, his 19-year-old daughter, Lorraine, on the couch, watching the popular TV show Beverly Hills CEOs on the ex-president's prized 42-inch wall-mounted plasma flat screen. The last the ex-president had heard from Lorraine, she had a mild speech impediment due to a recent self-administered tongue piercing and had indicated she was taking a semester off at Yale to do some soul-searching and truth-seeking amongst rock formations and cacti in the Arizona desert. Beverly Hills CEOs, which the ex-president himself has become an addicted viewer of, is the highest-rated hour-long drama on Friday night and has been lauded by critics for its portrayal of the titular CEOs as complex, multidimensional, psychologically nuanced characters, rather than the usual stereotypical cigar-chewing, martini-swilling, cookie-cutter tyrants, instead featuring, for instance, a multi-millionaire real estate executive who suffers from a crippling fear of heights, such that to even gaze upon the skyscrapers his Fortune 500 company has erected sends him reeling to the ground in a fit of vertigo, and an oil executive obsessed with a waitress at a nearby Popeye's Chicken and Biscuits who never returns his affections, many boardroom speeches announcing yet another record quarter for profits delivered while gallantly fighting back tears over the love that can never be his, and a financial executive who both is under indictment for tax fraud and the father of a daughter with clinically diagnosed Asperger's syndrome, last season's final episode, ending with the financial executive explaining to his daughter that he might have to go away for a long, long time, but it's not her fault, and he will still love her, and he will always be her daddy, wrapping his arms around his high-functioning autistic daughter in a tight, cocoon-like embrace, which makes the daughter, who is very sensitive about her personal space, say, Daddy, let me go, which makes her father only squeeze tighter, dig his fingernails into her pajama-clad back even deeper, his daughter getting more and more agitated, Daddy, let me go, the executive not relenting, telling his daughter he loves her, crushing her to his breast, the daughter struggling futilely to break free, Daddy, let me go, Daddy, let me go, the executive telling his daughter that she is the only thing that really matters, and he is so sorry, and can she please forgive him, and the daughter answering only, Daddy, let me go, again and again, the financial executive sobbing now, wailing, bawling, as was the ex-president, 
and the Secret Service agents next to him on the couch when they were watching the rerun season finale together over light beer and buffalo wings, thanks to the immortality-ensuring magic of syndication. Daddy, this is the ex-president's daughter. Apple Blossom, this is the ex-president. They strip-searched me, Daddy. Yes, this is the ex-president. They do that. Lorraine rises from the couch and embraces her father, throwing her arms around his neck and kissing him on the cheek. She smells of cigarettes and cheap alcohol and industrial hand soap, as if for the last five months she's been bathing exclusively in the restroom sinks of dive bars and highway exchange strip clubs. The last time the ex-president had seen her, at Yale, she had looked sad and troubled and desperate, but at least she had smelled nice, at least she had looked well-fed. Now she looked not only sad, but also scarecrow skinny, as if her soul-searching in the desert had involved biblically-inspired fasting, followed by a strict post-enlightenment diet of sagebrush, cactus needles, armadillo, sand. A tattered, bumper-sticker-covered suitcase with a busted lock lies on the floor beside her feet, and the ex-president reads the sticker's slogans for clues to the root cause of his daughter's condition. One bumper sticker says, Honk, if you are Jesus. Another says, I'd rather be performing routinized corporate tasks. They thought maybe I wasn't your real daughter, says Lorraine, still holding onto her father. They made me sit on the plastic chair in a dimly lit room with a card table and a reinforced door and what was almost certainly a one-way mirror and asked me questions only your real daughter would know. What songs you used to sing to me, stories you used to read to me, what you would whisper into my ear every night after tucking me in, kissing me on the forehead, making sure I had said my prayers before turning out the light. The ex-president asks his daughter if she would like something to drink, such as, for instance, a Diet Pepsi or a Fresca. They ask me for names, Daddy, the name of my grade school's crossing guard, of our vice principal, of our janitors, cafeteria ladies, office personnel. They took turns, two of them, asking me for the name of the first boy I ever kissed, the first boy I let feel beneath my shirt, the first boy who tried to go all the way in the back of his parents' station wagon and then told all his friends I was a whore, the name of our family practitioner, science teachers, soccer coaches, ballet instructors, orthodontists. One of the men who asked the questions was thin, and the other was fat. Both had mild speech impediments. The thin man asked for the names of my Sunday school teachers, and the fat man asked for the names of everyone who had pressured me into oral sex. The names of playground supervisors, guidance counselors, choir directors, the school nurse. The name of the lady who checked our hair annually with a fine-tooth comb for head lice. The name of the man who spoke to our class about the dangers of chewing tobacco by pressing an electronic device attached to his neck. The ex-president asks his daughter if maybe she would prefer iced tea, or 1% RBGH-free milk, or calcium-enriched pulp-free orange juice. They asked me what was my greatest childhood disappointment, says the ex-president's daughter, still clinging to her father tightly. They asked how old I was when I realized everybody dies. They asked if I smoked pot, if I rode the horse, if I wrote the self-conscious poetry and painted my walls black and knew all the lyrics to the dark side of the moon. If I cried after I lost my virginity, if I believed in a just and merciful God, if I looked into mirrors and thought, this cannot be who I am, until I finally stopped looking into mirrors, 
avoided all reflective surfaces when possible, kept who I was or was not out of sight, out of mind, brushed my teeth and took out my contacts and did my hair and makeup in windowless hallways, in broom closets, in the dark. The ex-president says, how about chocolatey, vitamin and mineral rich Ovaltine, and Lorraine releases her grip on her father's neck, collapses to the couch, and breaks down into blubbering sobs. backyard barbecue among the CEOs and their children and their ageless spouses, the ex-president continues to try his luck with the Don Johnson Legacy 500's push-button ignition, but remains decidedly luckless. Meanwhile, by the ethnic statuary, a contingent of oiled-up, bare-chested caterers emerge from dense backyard foliage with a live 60-pound suckling pig, its legs tied, its eyes bulging and white shiver-inducing squeals drowning out the digitally disseminated treble drums. Female caterers distribute Vietnamese spring rolls, shrimp ceviche, assorted cheeses. The wife regales a triad of CEOs with an amusing anecdote concerning the ex-president's ill-advised game of roller hockey with the House Appropriations Committee. The bare-chested caterers lower the pig to the ground, hold it steady, pull back its head to expose its throat, as the speaker-amplified drum patterns strain to be heard above the pig's escalating mercy-seeking cries, one of the caterers wields a gleaming, stainless steel, double-bladed knife, and plunges it deep into the throat of the squealing pig. It screams siren-like, its eyes frozen in disbelief, its blood gushing in intermittent, bright, hot, crimson waves, as the nearby CEOs calmly discuss foreign markets, commodity pools, offshore bank accounts, HR outsourcing, subprime liquidity, the rise of the yen. agent and ping-pong. The agent holds her paddle Chinese-style and is absolutely thumping the ex-president, three games to none. After losing the fourth and final game, 11 to 3, the ex-president collects his breath, shakes the Secret Service agent's hand, and then asks her, point-blank, apropos of nothing, if she would take a bullet for him. 
The Secret Service agent says, Yes, sir, Mr. President, sir, I would. The ex-president then says, Why? Why, for instance, is the Secret Service agent willing to leave her husband a widower, her children motherless? Why is she willing to die in terrible pain, horrible agony, as an assassin's bullet shreds her stomach, her lungs, her small and large intestines? Why is she willing to die for him, the ex-president, a man who, at least when the agent first took her professional oath, she didn't personally know, a man who 78% of Americans wouldn't trust to give them restaurant recommendations or travel directions, a man who famously made the cover of Time, Newsweek, and Vanity Fair's special editions devoted to the worst people of all time, and yet the agent might not be willing to sacrifice herself and, by extension, the future happiness and livelihoods of her beloved husband and children for, say, the director of a YMCA youth basketball program in Saratoga Springs, New York, or a social worker who regularly volunteers her time at an inner-city Grand Rapids, Michigan soup kitchen, or a single mother of three in Des Moines, Iowa, who still manages to send money to assist children with cleft palates in developing countries, and also to save the rainforest, the whales, the manatees, and the Secret Service agent responds that she is willing to die for the ex-president because it is her sworn professional duty. Just as the ex-president's duty had been to steer his country toward peace and prosperity and uphold the ideals of freedom, progress, and democracy that had made his nation revered and idolized by the downtrodden and the oppressed throughout the world, the Secret Service agent's duty is to make sure that anyone who had ever been entrusted by a majority or close to majority of Americans to carry the heavy burden of holding their country's executive office is never to be cut down by an act of violence, so help her God. And it doesn't matter if the ex-president has not fulfilled his own duties, it doesn't matter if the ex-president has led his country toward despondency and decay, has led it to ruin, has made his country a laughingstock, an object of ridicule, disdain, hatred, throughout the developed and developing world. There is no caveat for this in the Secret Service agent's oath, and so she will thus protect the ex-president to the death, because it is simply what she has been entrusted to do. themed backyard barbecue as tribal music plays and the caterers serve tomato bruschetta and oysters rockefeller while walking barefoot across hot coals the ex-president abandons the don johnson legacy 500 grill for his living room where he finds his daughter on the couch watching a rerun from season two of beverly hills ceos on the pristine wall-hung plasma flat screen in this episode the financial executive not yet indicted for tax fraud, is discovered mid-coitus with an entry-level actuarial candidate in the rec room by his wife, and before the executive can even untie the actuarial candidate's arms from the sliding metal poles of the foosball table, the wife smashes the glass of her husband's trophy cabinet with her bare fist, and then calmly asks for a divorce. In the episode's final scene, which the ex-president and his daughter now watch, intently, the financial executive and his wife sit down with her Aspergian daughter and gently explain to her that her mommy and daddy won't be living together anymore, the father with his eyes on the floor, the mother with her right hand wrapped in bandages, 
both parents emphasizing that this has absolutely nothing to do with the daughter, who they still love very, very much, and who has done nothing wrong, and who still is and will always be 100% their little girl. Meanwhile, the daughter, played by an unautistic method actress who, in pre-production, immersed herself so deeply within the short-wired, idiosyncratic world of Asperger's sufferers, the show's producers were initially worried there was actually something wrong with her, and forced her to undergo a battery of psychological tests, has spent the last week memorizing the Wikipedia entries for several hundred common household objects, and frequently interrupts her parents' talk with sentence-length informational snippets about the chair, the futon, the ironing board, the microwave, the desk. The ex-president, when not watching the television, watches his daughter. He last saw her five months ago, but it seems like she's aged more like five years. She has sores on her lips and deep circles under her eyes and what look like cigarette burns on her arms, which are further modeled with poorly rendered tattoos of Looney Tunes characters and Judeo-Christian religious icons. The ex-president prays to God are merely temporary. She had said she was leaving Yale to find herself, but who could have imagined there would be such a discrepancy between what she hoped to find and what she eventually found. The ex-president had thought she'd be fine on her own, what with the secret service detail following her around and all, had argued her side vociferously to the wife, resulting in the wife going absolutely ape-lost and kicking his ass out of the presidential bed onto the presidential couch. But apparently his daughter had not been fine after all, had in fact been the polar opposite of fine, becoming a scarecrow, accumulating bumper stickers, absorbing cigarette smoke and cheap alcohol, and showering in strip club sinks. Every other weekend, says the executive to his daughter on the plasma television, also observed federal holidays, Labor Day, Columbus Day, Veterans Day, not Arbor Day, nor Valentine's Day, Flag Day, Groundhog's Day, the birthday of Martin Luther King Jr., Memorial Day, Christmas, Thanksgiving, the 4th of July. The ex-president remembers his daughter being born. How could he not? The garish white light of the hospital room, the huddle of family members holding camcorders, hallmark cards, non-latex balloons. Did the 7% of Americans who would spit on his unconscious body supine on the sidewalk ever stop to consider that he remembers his daughter's birth? That he remembers the joy, the butterflies, the terror, as she came bloody and screaming into the world. He remembers falling in love with her, instantly, as the nurse handed her to him. His daughter, eight pounds, five ounces, swaddled in white cloth. He remembers holding her for the first time, rocking her in his arms, whispering the name, now forever sacred, he had chosen randomly from a phone book. Lorraine, Lorraine, Lorraine. Did the 56% of Americans who wished the ex-president had never been born ever stop to consider his infant daughter's laugh? Did they ever consider her deep brown eyes, her tiny, grasping hands, her heartbreaking smile? Where were the poll questions asking, did the ex-president save all of his daughter's report cards? Did he remember her first step, first words? Did he cry at her high school graduation? The questions asking, did the ex-president consider his daughter to be the most beautiful creature in the entire world? 
Where were the questions asking did the ex-president, 19 years later, still think of his daughter every night, in his bed, on the couch, just before he went to sleep, hoping she was happy, praying she was safe, asking God to protect her and guide her toward the path to salvation and to forgive him for each and every time he had let her down, led her astray, failed to adequately demonstrate the depth and breadth of his too often hidden love. Remember, says the executive's wife, just because mommy and daddy don't love each other anymore, it doesn't mean we don't love you. The ex-president watches the executive and his soon-to-be ex-wife struggling to communicate with their Aspergian daughter on the television and thinks of what to say to his own daughter. It is not easy. He has never been a gifted public speaker and, furthermore, almost every speech he has ever given has been written by someone else. But this is going to have to come from him. It is going to have to come from the heart. Well, at least partially from the heart. It certainly wouldn't be completely unreasonable for him to borrow from a few outside sources here and there. Like, for instance, old episodes of Beverly Hills CEOs. There have been a number of father-to-daughter monologues that might prove fruitful in terms of inspiration for his own paternal soliloquy, such as the one from the third season, wherein a telecommunications executive apologizes to his now-adult daughter for shipping her off to boarding school on the opposite end of the country for the entirety of her youth, and then missing her high school and college graduations, and then missing her wedding, and then missing all of her children's births, and then missing her now-late husband's tragic and unexpected funeral, although a very nice card and a bouquet of flowers is now, as the executive speaks to his daughter over the phone, in the mail, ostensibly as consolation for her late husband's death, but also as a sort of retroactive celebration and congratulation of the couple's earlier matrimony, childbirthing, first, fifth, and tenth anniversaries, etc., which the executive exhibits as proof that he really is willing to change in terms of renewing some sort of actual relationship with his estranged, widowed daughter. But then, for whatever reason, the ex-president instead thinks back to the conversation he recently had with his Secret Service agent after their ping-pong match, how she had said she would willingly take a bullet for him, how this had touched the ex-president deeply, so deeply, in fact, he'd entered an immovable, introspective haze during a subsequent foosball game and had lost by an embarrassingly wide margin. What he mostly contemplated, as the Secret Service agent rocketed foosball after foosball past the ex-president's hapless, intermittently pole-spun goalie, was if he, the ex-president, would willingly take a bullet for another human being. If, when the shots first rang out, and the crowd started screaming, everyone else hit the floor, he would throw himself into the line of fire to save somebody else's life. The former Secretary of the Interior, for example. A dedicated public servant, a true, valued friend, but would the ex-president actually hurl his body in front of her, at a press conference, at a university colloquium, at a private fundraiser for his controversial presidential library, once a gunman or gunmen started spraying the air with gunfire? No. Almost certainly, he would not. The wife, his partner of nearly 25 years, his better half, his moral compass, his rock, his to love and to cherish till death did them part. Again, probably not. He could easily see himself diving to the floor, crawling behind the podium, cowering amid the screams and the gunfire and 
the panic and paralytic, self-interested fear. And this had saddened him profoundly, so profoundly, in fact, that he had left his foosball goalie completely motionless for the entirety of the final three games. But now, on the couch, next to his daughter, tattoo-riddled, scarecrow-thin, silent, he realizes, with near certainty, that he would take a bullet for her, that his instinctive, hardwired, fight-or-flight response would be to leap in front of her at the first sign of a raised rifle or semi-automatic, and without thinking except the consequences for replacing her as the shooter's intended target. And he immediately feels the need to tell her this. He needs to tell her he would die for her. He would offer his own life so that hers could go on, something he had not realized during the foosball game, but realizes now, believes fervently, believes with every fiber and muscle and tendon and synapse and cell in his body, he needs to tell her this, sees that somehow this proves that he loves her, proves he is human and not evil and heartless and not the man that 99% of Americans, according to Gallup and USA Today and McClatchy newspapers, say that he is, and so he musters the courage to speak and turns away from the television and looks at his beloved, troubled, wandering daughter with tenderness and affection and the stirring of life-altering hope and discovers she is fast asleep, head back, mouth open, lightly snoring. The ex-president is deeply distressed. He considers waking her up, shaking her violently, saying what he is burning to say as soon as her eyes pop open, but decides against it. Instead, he walks outside. He walks into the backyard, where the CEOs discuss government bonds, and the wife recounts a story concerning the ex-president sleepwalking, and the caterers bury the slaughtered pig in its underground furnace, where it will be slow-cooked to tender perfection. The ex-president ignores them all, and heads for the Don Johnson Legacy 500 gas grill. The CEOs discuss toxic assets, vulture capital, corporate trusts, and the ex-president presses the grill's push-button ignition to no effect, again and again. The caterers not busy burying the pig juggle flaming fencing repairs, stock certificates, largemouth bass, and the ex-president remains at the grill, pumping the ignition, hundreds of times, no flame, no fire, no spark. The tribal drums, emanating from unseen speakers, build in complexity, intensity, fervor, and the CEOs and their wives and children join the caterers and the ex-president's wife in a jubilant communal dance around the glowing grave of the slow-cooking 60-pound pig, singing, chanting, flailing their arms and legs in gleeful, mystic abandon. And meanwhile, the ex-president keeps pressing the button, his face sweating, his muscles aching, his heart gripped by hopelessness and fear, as the Secret Service watch from the shadows from the state-of-the-art security center between the rec room and the room housing the wife's Victorian dollhouse collection, doing everything within their power to protect the ex-president from harm.